Bonjour and welcome to City Breaks to Lose, episode 3, which I'm going to devote entirely to that lovely building, the Capitole, the elegant pink marble columned building which faces out onto the city's largest square and which is connected to some of the most memorable moments of history in the city and which is the building that you'd pick for any travel guide you're writing if you want one picture to shout out Toulouse instantly to anybody who's glancing through it then you just need to park yourself in front of the Capitole and take a picture of it. It's a very Toulouse word actually. Other cities have a mairie, a town hall. But in Toulouse, this building, the one from which the city is governed, is known even today as the Capitole. It's a name that comes from the Latin. Originally it was called Domini de Capitulo, which means Lords of the Chapter, referring to the people whose job it was to rule the city in medieval times. In the 15th century, they Frenchified it a bit. These people were known as les Seigneurs du Capitole, but you'll notice that they kept the Capitole word even though they got rid of the Latin for the rest. The building you see today dates from the 18th century, but the idea of the Capitol being the ruling council of the city goes way back further than that, and there's a nice story from the 14th century which illustrates the power it had and also the power it didn't have. It's called L'Affaire des Marie Béranger. It centres on one of the consuls of the day, one François de Gavre, who was out one evening in the city and came across, who'd believe it, a group of very noisy university students, rioting, making a lot of noise, probably all drunk. And he took against them, admonished them, told them nobody behaved like that in his city, and he was rewarded for his interference by being attacked and wounded. So he upped the ante and had about 30 of them arrested, and then he fell into trouble with the church authorities, who said, hang on a minute, the university comes under our jurisdiction. Student discipline is our affair, and it's not up to you, so we'll deal with them ourselves. He was having none of this, very much felt that he wanted to show that he was in charge, so he found a rather drastic way of doing that. He had the chief perpetrator of the riot, one Emery Béranger, executed. Next we know the Paris government, the Parlement de Paris, intervene and tell him he's got no right to be violating the special rights of the University of Toulouse students. That's an actual quote. And they sent soldiers down to the city to occupy the Capitol building. And the soldiers duly stayed put to make the point until a little while later, the Capitol had to pay 50,000 livres to get their building back. This notion of the power struggle between the church and the city authorities, and between Toulouse and national government in Paris. Although that story comes from the 14th century, this does actually go on right through the centuries to the present day. The early Capitoles were described in a French history book I read as une oligarchie de notables, so an oligarchy of well-known people. They kept fiscal registers, they knew the income of every household in the city, they had the power to levy taxes, and to decide how to spend them. The Capitol Charter dates, in fact, from the 13th century, and the city was divided into eight separate sections, separate districts, which were called Capitula, and one governor, one Capitol, was elected from each of these districts, so the eight of them then served as a committee known as the Capitol and governed the city. They made all the major decisions on things like the law and the economy and policing the city, They would debate and then decide. They gave themselves some privileges. They had some rather natty red silk gowns that they used to wear, for example. 
and they pretty much ruled the city free from interference from the crown's judges. But their authority came under threat in 1420 when something called the Parlement de Toulouse was established by the reigning king, King Charles VII. It was the second parliament in France, second only really to the one in Paris, and it had a lot of authority. So, for example, it would issue regulations. If there were royal edicts, they would make sure they were carried out. They would scrutinise the laws and could decide to refuse to register them if they didn't like them. The members of the Parlement tended to be drawn from the nobility, whereas the Capitol were often merchants, lawyers, that sort of person. So there was a real conflict over who was going to have the power. The members of Parliament did pay a tax to the Crown, but they then decided that perhaps if they were doing that, they would exempt themselves from city taxes and from other things that other people had to do. So they would, for example, regard themselves as not needing to have to have troops billeted upon them or to pay tithes to the church. And they decided that they themselves would never be tried in any court except their own. So they managed to get themselves outside the jurisdiction that covered everybody else and, of course, made themselves quite unpopular in many respects and certainly were not liked by the Capitol, whose authority was challenged. This conflict got very mixed up with the religious conflicts that we've already talked about in the last episode, not least because the parliamentarians were often very closely linked to the church and some of the Capitol were more, shall we call it, independently minded than that. This culminated in 1562 in something called the Riots of Toulouse. Pressure had been building up and up. Members of the Reformed Church of France, people that perhaps today we'd call Huguenots, were very much against or in conflict with members of the Roman Catholic Church. There were violent clashes, and in this particular week in May, in 1562, several thousand people were killed. The tensions had come about over things like the Huguenots, the Protestants, singing psalms in French, which the Catholic Church didn't like, eating meat on days when it was supposed to be prohibited, perhaps during Lent and so on, and generally just denying the authority of the Catholic Church over them. There was unrest, there were riots, there was fighting in the streets, bloodshed, people were burnt to death, and it all culminated on the 13th of May, when the Protestants seized the Capitol building and barricaded themselves inside. In fact, they were vastly outnumbered, and in the end they had to capitulate, and this became known, in Catholic terms at least, as Le Jour de la Délivrance, so the Day of Deliverance. After that, the Protestants had been defeated, Toulouse was really a very radically Catholic city right from then, so the 1560s, up to the revolution in 1789. That's not to say there weren't conflicts along the way. If you go into the courtyard in the Capitol building, you'll find a plaque marking the spot where one Henry de Montmorency was executed in 1632. He had been leading troops in resistance to the king's troops and the troops sent by the very Catholic Cardinal Richelieu, and when he was defeated in battle, he was brought to Toulouse to be beheaded. Such was the spectacle that Louis XIII and his Cardinal Richelieu actually attended, and it says in all the French historical textbooks that this was sending a strong message on, quote, les dangers de se révolter contre l'autorité royale, the dangers of leading a revolt against royal authority. In fact, they weren't content with just beheading him. They also took his title away. His lands had been the first duchy of France and this title was duly removed and given to a much more Catholic duke. There's a plaque in the Place du Parlement to another martyr of the religious wars, an Italian called Lucilio Vanini. 
He had been tried during the Inquisition led by the Catholic Church to root out non-believers and people defying their authority. He was tried for, quote, atheism, blasphemy, witchcraft, and, the French is rather nice, corruption des mœurs, so maybe moral corruption in English. This was in 1619, and for these crimes, he was punished by having his tongue cut out before being strangled and burnt and having his ashes thrown to the wind. This is a less-known story, I think, than the Duc de Montmorency, and it wasn't until 2008 that a plaque was put up to remember him, and it was erected by a society called the Société de la Libre Pensée, so the Society for Free Thought. The philosopher Voltaire had something to say about the people of Toulouse in 1763. He'd been rather horrified to discover that on this date, which was exactly 200 years after the riots of Toulouse, they had celebrated, in inverted commas, the whole thing, by holding a mass procession and a big firework display. All of this to celebrate the triumph of the Catholics over so-called dissenters, or, as Voltaire rather scathingly put it, they were celebrating, quote, their joy at the day when 4,000 heretical citizens were massacred two centuries ago. He wrote a tract called the Traité de Tolérance, the Treaty of Tolerance, in which he raged that the people of Toulouse were superstitieux, so superstitious, and pointed out that they regard as monsters people, he actually uses the word frères, so brothers, who simply don't share the same religion as them. A sentiment for our times, perhaps. So, right up until the revolution, the Capitole oversaw all the general running of the city. I saw a list of the sort of things they were responsible for, and it included street cleanliness, the organisation of markets, the hours of inns and pubs, prostitution, and that very French word, les spectacles, so grand events, celebrations. All through the 18th century, there were struggles, not just in Toulouse, of course, but particularly there, against the royal orders that were sent down from Paris, and this culminated in 1788, when some of the Toulouse magistrates were told yet again that their powers were going to be reduced, and three of them set off to Paris to protest, and when they came back, they were greeted back in the city as heroes, and awarded a medal for patriotism. This culminated, of course, in 1789 in the Revolution, the moment at which there was a suppression of regional parliaments. Paris was now going to play a much greater role in governing the country, and in 1790, the Capitula disappeared altogether. Citizens of Toulouse had quite a lot to do in the revolution. They were said to be quite against being ruled by what they called aristocrates parlementaires, so parliamentary aristocrats, nor did they really relish being ruled by prêtres traditionalistes, so traditional priests. I read a description of Toulouse in these times, which is rather nice in the French. It said, Toulouse vibre au souffle des temps nouveaux, so the reference to les temps nouveaux, the revolutionary times, the new times, the new order. A movement was created in Toulouse in 1790 called the Club Littéraire et Patriotique, so using words revolutionary and patriotic in their title, but in fact the result of that was about 50 of them were executed in the main square of the city, called Place du Capitole of course these days, but then it was known as Place de la Liberté and it was said that they were executed for motif politique, in other words, political motives, shorthand for being against the national government. The same time period saw quite a rise in anti-religious thinking. Churches in those days were deemed to be becoming temples of reason, as they put it in the French, and they showed what they thought as well by renaming some of the 
places in the city. So a square which had been known as Place des Penitents, so the square of the penitents, suddenly was renamed as Place de la Tricolore, so after the new French flag. And the Rue Saint-Rome became Rue de la Liberté, so Freedom Road. And it was from this point, just at the moment of the revolution, that a Conseil Général de la Commune was elected, so a general council for the city, rather than the capital itself. Although the original new council did include two former capitals and some merchants and lawyers. And right up to today, the capital has had similar responsibilities, really, overseeing such things as justice, the ruling of the police and the work of the hospitals in the city. So I think you can say that knowing just a little bit about the history of the capital stresses a number of things that have been important in Toulouse really across the centuries. So local pride and the idea of self-governing, the struggles between national and regional authorities, the influence of religion on the city, and a general tendency to uprisings and conflict and revolution whenever it was deemed necessary. So moving on to the building today and the idea that you might want to go on a visit, I'm going to think briefly about the actual building with its courtyard and its civic rooms and the square in which it sits and the donjon, the dungeon, which was originally part of the complex, but which is in fact now the tourist office. So starting with the square then, Place du Capitole, a five-acre site that really is the heart of the city. In earlier times, more of it was built on, but it was cleared in the mid-18th century when it was decided to give Toulouse a grand central structure. The project took nearly a 100 years. It wasn't completed until 1850. And the idea really was to clear the square and to give the building a new look, a unity, the one facade that you see now, which hid and therefore drew together all the various parts of the complex. One thing to notice about the square is that in 1993, an Okitan cross was set into the paving. An Okitan cross has four spurs of equal length with quite sort of fancy ends. They look a little bit like three-leaf clovers. And although once you notice it, you start seeing it everywhere today, it has its origins in the 12th century. And over the years, it's been used on coins and seals and coats of arms. Places where you might see it today, apart from set into the square, would be on street signs in Toulouse, on the city's coat of arms. Toulouse Football Club has incorporated it into its logo. And the flag of Occitanie is a yellow Occitan cross set against a red background. I'm sure you'll see that once you know to look out for it. A curious fact I came across somewhere was the fact that a survey had been done and it was decided that if you were producing something local, I don't know, say biscuits or something for tourists, if you add the Occitan cross to your packaging, your profits will increase by 20%. So there you have it. Anyway, the one set into the square is decorated. It's got things like signs of the zodiac and the months of the year and the hours of the day on it. But the main thing about it is it is a symbol of Occitan. So that deals with the square. Thinking about the building itself, dating, as I said a minute ago, from about 1750 to 60. One lovely long, 128 metre long, in fact, facade to unify all the buildings behind it. It's got eight columns representing the eight capital or municipal magistrates who govern the city and decorated on top, of course, by statues. So if you stand facing the building on the left hand side, you'll see statues representing the arts and the sciences. On the right hand end, which is the bit where the theatre is actually behind the facade, the Théâtre du Capitole and the Opera House, there are 
fittingly statues representing tragedy and comedy, and then the central statues represent strength and justice and are surrounded by angels. I saw the project described somewhere as one of the last architectural projects organised by the Ancien Régime. So obviously it's built, it's snuck in just before the revolution. One of the first things you'll notice if you go to look round is the courtyard, which is the oldest part of the main building, dating from the 17th century. It's got side galleries, it's got a portal with a big monument of Henry IV built into it, and then the plaque that I mentioned commemorating the execution of the anti-royalist Duke of Montmorency. You can see coats of arms of the various capitoles from across the centuries. And leading off it then is the grand staircase which will take you up into the building itself. Just before going in there, I wanted to mention the donjon, which was the original tower built in 1525 to house deeds relating to the governance of the city, all the legal papers and so on. It was restored and added to in the 19th century by an architect known as Violet le Duc, who redid quite a lot of buildings across Languedoc, used to like to add more decorations. Here he added the belfry, for example. And this building functioned as a place to house paperwork, really, until 1948, when the deeds were moved and it became the Toulouse Tourist Office. If you decide to visit the inside of the Capitole, you will reach a suite of really lovely fancy rooms by proceeding up the Great Stairway. These rooms would include things like the Salle Gervais, which is used for wedding receptions, and which rather sweetly has three paintings showing love at various ages, they being 20, 40 and 60. And also in there you'll find paintings of Eros surrounded by nymphs. There's a big room called the Salle des Illustres, so the room for the illustrious, if you like, used for official receptions, used for weddings, and with quite a lot of fine paintings and sculptures. More about those in a minute. There's a room called the Salle Henri Martin. Henri Martin was a painter who lived from 1860 to 1945. Impressionist in style, and a lot of his paintings were quite local. And in his room here, you can see various scenes he painted of episodes taking place on the banks of the River Garonne, so very Toulouse in flavour. And then lastly, there's the council chambers, which you can also visit. A big fancy meeting room, still used today, and with a plaque on it of all the mayors of Toulouse since 1790. All their names are listed. So if you go on a tour, things to look out for particularly, I think the busts, there are sculptures and busts of famous people with a Toulouse connection. So I'll just pick out a few of those to mention briefly. There's one, of course, of Raymond VI, the Count of Toulouse, who was a rather tolerant Count, who refused to throw the Cathars out of his city, and who defended Toulouse against Simon de Montfort. Managed to retake the city, in fact, after Simon had nearly occupied it. There's a bust of a famous mathematician called Fermat. You may have heard of the book called Fermat's Last Theorem. So that's the Fermat who is here. He was actually a Basque by birth, born in 1601, but he studied law in Toulouse before becoming the leading mathematician of the 17th century. He did a lot of mind-blowing things about analytic geometry and differential calculus, if that means anything to you, but he also served in the Parliament at Toulouse and was a capital there. He's best known for his last theorem, and this is so baffling that I'm going to have to read you a little extract from the Encyclopaedia Britannica, which explains far better than I could what Fermat's last theorem actually is, should you be interested. OK, so it says, quote, This appeared in the margin of his copy of Diophantis Arithmetica, 
and states that the equation xn plus yn equals zn, given that x, y, z and n are all positive integers, has no solution if n is greater than 2. I've thought about that. It does sound unlikely, and apparently it's true. They really thought that there was no solution at all. And this theorem remained unsolved until the late 20th century, when one in a long line of mathematicians, all chipping away at it, managed to come up with the solution. I'm afraid I don't understand the solution, so if you're interested in that, you probably need to go and look it up. A third bust of someone whom we'll be meeting in a future episode is that of Pierre-Paul Riquet, also born, bizarrely, in 1601, the very same year as Fermat. He was an engineer, and he it was who dreamt up, designed and had built the Canal du Midi, the canal which links the Atlantic Ocean with the Mediterranean and passes, of course, just by Toulouse. A project which has been called the greatest civil engineering project in Europe from Roman times to the 19th century. He thought up the idea, he persuaded Louis XIV and his finance minister Jean-Baptiste Colbert to lend him the money. He solved all the technical problems, how to build the locks how to build a reservoir for providing water in the dry season, how to dig a tunnel. He was apparently the first engineer to use explosive to blast rock. And the sad thing is that he died in 1681, just a year before the canal was finished and opened. And then a fourth famous person also linked to Toulouse, whose bust is here, and that's the politician Jean Jaurès. You might know his name because there are roads named after him, I think all over France, and I think in Paris there's a metro station named after him. He was someone who taught at the University of Toulouse. He helped to found the medical school there. And then he became an MP, not representing Toulouse, actually representing Albi, another town in Languedoc that we'll hear a bit more about in a future episode. And eventually he was an MP for some 30 years with a few little gaps. He became the leader of the Socialist Party. As well as being a humanitarian and a socialist responsible for lots of projects, he was known in later years for his pacifism, his anti-war stance. He was killed, assassinated, in 1914, just as he was trying to negotiate for détente with Germany. I think the two facts are linked. I think somebody who thought that wasn't what they wanted bumped him off. So, that's four statues that you'll recognise when you see the names. And then wanted to mention just briefly some of the artwork which is on display. There are two large and very noteworthy paintings actually on the Grand Stairway that, of course, you'll see on your way up to visit the rest. They take as their subject Languedoc in medieval times, but they were in fact painted at the beginning of the 20th century. One shows a medieval tournament presided over by Raymond VI, and the other one is entitled Fête des Jeux Floraux, which is the annual poetry festival that began in medieval times and was held really ever since as billed as the Olympics of Poetry was held in Toulouse and this painting shows a poet reading out his verses to seven troubadours who are gathered around him and listening. So it's a celebration of verse and the arts in Toulouse. Then when you get up the grand staircase and enter the Salle des Illustres, so the room of the illustrious, what you need to know there is that at the end of the 19th century the authorities chose 20 painters and sculptors with connections to Toulouse and asked them to produce some works to display here in this room. They gave them some themes, which were things like glorious episodes in Toulouse life and Toulouse, city of arts and culture. So it's a good place to just get a little feel for how artists from Toulouse see their own city. 
and what they thought was important to record. Just going to mention a few paintings there. One that you see in lots of the guidebooks is entitled Pope Urban II Entering Toulouse in 1096. And it recalls the date when the Pope came visiting because he was going to summon the Count of Toulouse, I think that was one of the earlier Raymonds, to take part in the First Crusade to the Holy Land. There's another one called The Defence of Toulouse Against Simon de Montfort, so recalling that moment of glory when Count Raymond VI managed to recapture the city, which Simon de Montfort had more or less taken over. The painting shows the rampart from which the stone which actually killed de Montfort was catapulted. In fact, on the ceiling in that same room, there's another painting entitled Apotheosis of the Woman Who Killed Montfort. I think it's a bit like Peter the Great and his victory over the Swedes. The people of Toulouse just have to keep talking about their victory over Simon de Montfort. And why not? It was their city. So that painting, of course, is capturing a moment in 1218. And then a third painting, which you see a lot pictured in guidebooks and on brochures at the tourist office, is a painting called La Belle Paul at her balcony. This dates from 1533, when the king, François Ier, François I, visited Toulouse and lots of festivities were held. And as part of this, a 15-year-old girl called Paul de Viguier was chosen to meet him. And he remarked on her beauty and called her La Belle Paul. And this name rather stuck. Unfortunately, this story takes a macabre turn in a minute, but it's rather sweet to start with. So the people of Toulouse, after the king had long gone, were so taken with this idea of the beauty of one of their citizens that they kept wanting to see her again. And in the end, the Capitole decreed that she would appear at her window twice a week and they could gather in the square below and see her. That's the moment that's captured in the painting. What it doesn't tell you is what apparently happened next. I'm not quite sure if this is real or legendary or possibly a mix. Anyway, it's said that La Belle Paul died very young and she was buried in Toulouse in one of the churches, the one called L'Église des Cordeliers, in fact. And they chose that spot because it was believed that bodies buried there didn't decay. And so obviously they wanted to keep her beauty, and that's where they buried her. It was true also, however, that women weren't allowed into this church, and they weren't happy with this. They wanted to be able to see La Belle Paul, so they kept clamouring to have her body brought out. And in the end, this was duly done. But unfortunately, when they brought it out, the skin and flesh crumbled to dust before everyone's eyes and left only the skeleton. So if you want to ruin the moment when you look at that beautiful painting, you could remember that story. There's lots more to see, of course, but the podcast would never end if I went blow by blow through every painting and every sculpture. So I'd just like to finish by saying that I think a visit to the Capitol really is worth doing. It is the city's most iconic building, after all. It's the site of some of the great moments in history pertaining to Toulouse. And today it's a place where Toulouse particularly and Languedoc culture generally are celebrated in the sculptures and paintings that they've chosen to display. So I think if you want to sort of size up the city in one visit, that might be the place to start. So, so much then for today's episode. Just a quick Look ahead to next week when I'm intending to move on in history to wartime Toulouse, Second World War time Toulouse, that is, and centre the episode on a visit to a museum that you might miss if you're not careful, but which is absolutely fascinating. And it's called the Musée départemental de la Résistance et de la Déportation. So the Museum of Resistance and Deportation. 
recounting what happened in Toulouse during the Second World War. There's lots you can learn there about places in the city where the resistance met and tried to carry out their under-the-radar subterfuge against the Germans. There are lots of stories about well-known people from Toulouse whose actions have been remembered ever since. So hopefully that will make for an interesting episode. For the moment, though, at the end of this episode, just remains for me to thank you very much for listening. Un grand merci. And to wish you goodbye in French, au revoir. <laughs>